So I want to talk about love, and I want to talk about refuge, and finding nurturance in times of ecological crisis. So in the, in the teachings, in the suttas, like in the Loving Kindness Sutta and the practices we've been doing uh, at night, the metta practice, Buddha talks about um, he says so with a boundless heart one should cherish all living beings outwards and unbounded may all beings be at ease so there's this orientation in the in the tradition of living with a a heart that's boundless and radiant and encompassing all life. And one of the things I like about nature practice is there's a little more attunement to the vastness and the richness and the complexity and the diversity of life. Lots of life in our cities and towns, but when we talk about extending love for all beings, it's helpful to actually be around different kinds of beings, to have a sense of the, the vastness and the limitless array of beings on this earth. I remember looking up, uh, trying to find out how many s- kinds of species there were on the planet, and there's just huge differing ideas but certainly in the tens of millions many of which haven't been discovered in the rainforest many of those species are endangered and traditionally the 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 meta practice was extending love to sentient beings which I think classically meant humans and animals and creatures with, with consciousness. But of course, as our understanding uh, develops through the natural sciences and our hubris about who has consciousness and what has consciousness and what doesn't, we're you know, massively extending that sense of what is conscious. Right? The, the research in the uh, communication uh, amongst trees and the ways they collaborate and cooperate and have some awareness of predator and bugs and humans and and similarly with with the different studies going on with plant life and looking at how different plants have some rudimentary kind of consciousness. Of course, when we're hanging out with these beautiful old Douglas firs and ponderosa pines and white pines, and we can feel that sentience. You hang out by the, the, the Buddha tree or the Kuan Yin tree, and we feel that sense of presence. But we can equally feel it from aspens and from grasses and, and some mysterious consciousness that we really have very little understanding of. And so when we think about extending kindness and cherishing all life, all sentient life, that includes all life. Some would say rocks have a certain sentience. I remember I was in uh, leading a retreat in Costa Rica and the person that was hosting was grew up in Ecuador and had a lot of contact with uh, indigenous tribes there and one of the things we were uh, we were approaching this old 
teak tree in the forest. And he said in, in, in the tradition that he'd been exposed to that the time, I think it was from midnight to noon, that the trees were uh, taking up sap and, and life force, and so they were to be left alone. And then from noon to, to midnight, they were um, uh, a sense of giving out rather than taking in, and that was the time to approach. So they just, and I love that, I, that sensitivity to different species and, uh, and then, then the respect and the reverence that comes from that. So the Buddha talked about love in the context of the Brahma-viharas, which means the, these beautiful abodes of the heart. Love, compassion, joy, equanimity. And I'm sure that you can testify that being outdoors for a while calls forth those qualities very naturally. Uh, we can cultivate those qualities in meditation and in relationship and in life. And yet they also just come very organically, especially when we're open and sensitive outdoors. I was uh, twice this morning I was stepping off the porch where I'm staying, and I know that there's a snake lives by the, there's a big stone slab, two stone slabs of stepping stones. And I'm always careful because I know that it likes to hang out there and warm itself. I've seen it some years, same snake or family of snakes. And I was just about to step and I saw this head just slowly recoiling (laughs) under the deck. (laughs) And I felt such a, a wave of love, like this sweet being just trying to protect itself. Right? Usually snakes can engender some fear or trepidation. And, and then I went back in, actually, and then I came back out, and it was sunning itself, and then it slithered off again. And I was just like, oh, may you be happy. But think about the things that have touched you here that have just brought forth a quality of fondness or affection or care or love or kindness or compassion. Right? The, beings here, the bird life, the grouse, the deer, the frogs, the the trees, it's a lot of things, just kindles the heart. It's just a beautiful thing to let the heart be touched in that way, to be kindling, and then the, the spark of the aspen tree or the flight of the kestrel or something touches us and we feel that care. I saw her, when I was in my bedroom, I saw the, 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 the doe with her very young fawn spotted and jumping and just being very fawnish and like, it's hard not to love. Okay, you see that young life. And then equally, um, uh, the heart can be touched with compassion. There's a sense of care. In the, earlier in the season, um, there was a huge amount of um, uh, nests, um, uh, gray, what were they? Um, it's actually, a, I think, an endangered bird. Um, and yeah, very sweet, small. I thought it was a wren, but it's not a wren. And they're nesting in all the eaves in a lot of the buildings. And um, you know, seeing the little little heads peek up, you know, where's mama? Where's papa? You know, just that, just you can't help but caring, you know, wishing well, compassion, and then joy. This appreciative quality of the heart, appreciative joy, joy in the happiness of others, but also just the general quality of of delight, of rejoicing. And so, again, just noticing how nature can evoke these qualities. 
I was feeling a lot of joy on the walk, seeing people enjoying the vista and the views and and then there's equanimity right? so maybe it's equanimity around the, f- the sounds you hear at night outside your tent or the things that you might see crawling in the grass that may feel a little alarming right? there's a lot of things that require certain steadiness out here It's a poem from Meister Eckhart, Christian mystic who was very heavily sanctioned by the church for being, I think, too mystical. When I was the stream, when I was the forest, when I was still the field, when I was every hoof, foot, fin, and wing, when I was the sky itself, No one ever asked me, did I have a purpose? No one ever wondered, was there anything I might need? For there was nothing I could not love. It was when I left all we once were that the agony began, the fear and questions came, and I wept and I wept tears I had never known before. And so I returned to the river, I returned to the mountains. I asked for their hand in marriage again. I begged, I begged to wed every object, every creature. And when they accepted, the divine was present in my arms. So I think one of the things that we're doing here, for those of you who don't spend much time outdoors because of living in the city and working life and whatnot, (coughs) is, you know, we come out to the woods, to the mountains, and it's if we're waking up something ancient in us, some old knowing, some familiarity. And I know for myself, some, if I have, haven't been out into the wilds for a while, I can feel a sense of sadness or grief even for not being so connected to, to this earth, you know, being stuck in my office and buildings and cities and they come out here and there's a sense of sorrow for the lost connection and delight for the connection. And so, you know, there's so much alienation and isolation and I think one of the places that we can restore that is in our, is our lived connection with the earth feel a sense of home. So quite a few of you have spoken about the, the judging mind and, and how being outdoors in contrast, there's this feeling of being accepted or being welcomed or being okay. And I think it's a beautiful thing that happens outdoors is we, um, yeah, there's, a, there's a sort of quality that's present for the most part in the natural world that, that is not judging us. It's not selfing us, not judging us. And we can feel a sense of, oh, maybe I am okay after all. Maybe I am welcome after all. That well-known poem from Mary Oliver about the geese. I think I have. She says, you don't have to be good or walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. Only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Only have to let the soft animal body of you, soft animal of your body love what it loves. <coughs> and I see some of you lying on the ground. I think, oh, they're connecting with the animal body, becoming feral, 
becoming wild. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes of the prairies and deep trees, the mountains and rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese high in the clean blue air are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over, announcing your place in the family of things. Over and over, announcing your place in the family of things. So what is it to feel that sense of homecoming? To be okay as you are. So, I haven't talked so much about this, but you know, for me, being in outdoors is being in relationship. Loving and feeling loved. Being welcomed and welcoming. Being accepted and accepting. Another poem, this is by a New Zealand poet. And I love this because it speaks to kind of what I'm seeing in you, which is getting a little wilder and beautiful in the wildness, in the shaggy head, the the sun-blemished skin. And so she says, literally thin-skinned, I suppose. My face catches the wind off the snow line and flushes with a flush that will never wholly settle. Well, that was a metropolitan vanity, wanting to look young forever, to pass. I was never a pre-Raphaelite beauty, but now that I'm in love with a place which doesn't care how I look, or if I'm happy, happy is how I look, and that is all. My hair will grow gray in any case, my nails chip and flake, my waist thicken, and the years work all their usual changes. If my face is to be weather-beaten as well, that's little enough lost, a fair bargain for a year among the lakes and fells, when simply to look out of my window at the high pass makes me indifferent to mirrors and to what my soul may wear over its new complexion. And so that feeling weathered and finding that that the happiness that's way deeper than whatever superficial complexion looks and whatever that we get concerned about. So there's loving, there's compassion, there's um, feeling welcomed, feeling at home. And of course, with loving, there's also vulnerability. The reason why so many of us are feeling so much grief about the state of the earth is because we love this planet. We love the creatures here. We love the species here. We love our favorite woodlands and prairies and meadows and creeks and we feel tremendous loss hearing, seeing, knowing about them and it's part of this the part of the reality of this era. When I first started doing nature work almost 20 years ago, you know, there was a climate crisis then, it wasn't considered a crisis in, in, in by most people. There was a climate awareness, but it wasn't so pressing. And uh, the rate of species loss was not so known. And habitat loss was 
course happening, but not just the, the, the escalation of ecological destruction has just escalated exponentially in the last two decades. And so, the, but the work is different now, our, our times are different, our life is different, our practice is different, our earth is different, our awareness is different, growing slowly, painfully slowly. And so, with love also comes caring for that which we love and feeling the pain of the hurt that's been doing, that's being done to that which we love. So it also comes with grief and sadness and loss and rage and fear and anxiety. And there's a word coined by eco-psychologist from Australia, um, McKinley, McKinnon, something like that, who coined this term solostalgia, which means the grief and sadness that we feel when we go into a place in nature that we love and we know it's being destroyed. And this is an increasingly common experience because it's hard to go into any ecosystem and not be aware to some degree of its stress and the impact, climate change, etc. It's a beautiful piece of a poem from Miss Oliver, who I regard as nature's poet laureate. Nature doesn't have poet laureate, you know, body, you know, that, that votes, but gets my vote. And in part of this poem, she says, Everything in my life leads back to this, the great black fires of loss, whose other side is salvation, whose meaning none of us will ever know. To live in this world, you must be able to do three things, to love what is mortal, to hold it against your bones as if your own life depended on it, And when the time comes to let it go, to let it go. To live in this world where we must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal. To love this preciousness of life, each other, this beautiful place. To hold it against your bones as if your own life depended on it, which it does. And when the time comes to let it go, to let it go. So I think these are very prescient words, prescient teachings. Oh, hi, little grassies. There's a family, yeah, there's more coming. There goes mom and here come the kids. Nature always upstages. <laughs> to love what is more, and there's a baby, uh, quite a big baby. So it was interesting, is spending time in England and meeting with quite a few activists there and um, both people who do nature work like I do and also people are really involved in Extinction Rebellion and other other organizations and um, and just the interesting conversations that are happening there that's very alive and um, you know, one of the things that that's very up there is um, the whole notion of rewilding and a rewilding landscapes, which means allowing the landscape to rewild itself rather than intervene as we've done with forestry and with land management and with all kinds of things. And of course in England there's a strong history of preservation. 
and uh, land preservation and um, and so but what's being preserved is not necessarily how the land was it's just how it was in a particular era of time whether it was the Victorian era or the post-Neolithic era or whatever era and um, and for me there was a, this interesting reflection on how rewilding is, a, is an expression of love right? when you allow a landscape to rewild itself to let nature which has pr- profound wisdom that we have no inkling of its depth and complexity and to to take charge of itself and it's been doing it for billions of years very successfully uh, you know there's, there's places in England that are very cherished like Dartmoor some of the moorlands in Scotland where I grew up in Northumberland which are the sort of last remaining wild places but they're not how they were they're, they're very they're, you know, they're at the effect of logging that turned them into moorlands and they're beautiful moorlands but actually, if you took the grazing animals out, they would become forest again, quite quickly, just like the New England. And um, anyhow, I just thought, what, what, what is, you know, how does love express itself in relationship to the earth? I'll speak more about ecological action tomorrow. This I'm really worth exploring the facets of love and, and the earth today. So, one of the things I mentioned in the beginning of the retreat and, um, is that in these times of, of ecological disaster, potential collapse, uh, loss of species, I think it's also, even though it's paradoxical, and, and some of you have expressed this, that it's essential that we come into, uh, you know, touch deeply into the earth, that we still witness and feel and taste and cherish that which is alive and thriving and flourishing and beautiful and here. And as we've talked about, we can look at life and experience through, you know, a variety of lenses. Right? We can look at this forest and see all the ways that it's under stress because of uh, you know, long-term drought in the southwest, uh, etc. Uh, rising temperatures. Um, or we can look also at the aspens turning gold. And we can look at the grouse running through the grass. And we can put our hands and feet in the water of the Vallecitos River that still runs and was actually raging like I've never seen it rage this, this, this summer. But it's essential, especially those of us who are very affected by the climate crisis, to really uh, also nourish ourselves and to feel that love and the connection and the beauty that is still here, still thriving, still alive. I remember, so this, this center started as a social, uh, a social environmental justice retreat center. And so we would have these beautiful programs with activists, social justice activists, environmental activists. For about the first 10 years it opened. And, um, and they were pretty burnt out, and that, that's why they were given scholarships to come, fellowships. And many of the activists, most of the activists, environmental activists, who were mostly based in D.C., lobbying, campaigning, putting up fires, had not been to the woods, some of them for a decade, you know, doing really good, important work, you know, stemming the tide of destruction, and yet had gotten burnt out, jaded, despairing, angry, and um, and I could see that there was a there's a lack of inner nourishment, lack of going back to the land, the very thing that they're fighting and campaigning for. 
So it was beautiful to see them come and just have this nourishing two weeks on the land. And uh, quite a few of them would go back to their jobs in DC and quit. It wasn't exactly a great step forward for the movement, but um, it was a necessary, I thought, a necessary step, you know, to, you know, be caught, you know, being a raging, burnt-out activist is not a sustainable long-term solution. So it's important that we open our hearts and, you know, it takes a certain courage at this point to, f- to open our hearts to the natural world because it inevitably does mean that we feel the grief, that we feel the loss. And so it takes a courageous spirit to do that, to, to bear witness to what's happening, both the beauty and the horror. So another poem from Miss Oliver, part of a poem. So this is about a red bird explains itself. I assume she's talking about a cardinal who, uh, I th- who winter in New England. And, and the, 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 so it's the bird speaking itself about its own song. If I was the song that entered your heart, then I was the music of your heart that you wanted and needed. And this wilderness bloomed there with all of its followers, gardeners, lovers, people who weep for the death of rivers. And this was my true task, to be the music of your body, Do you understand? For truly the body needs a song, a spirit, a soul. And no less to make this work, the soul has need of a body. And I am both of the earth and I am of the inexplicable beauty of heaven, where I fly so easily. So welcome, yes, this is why I have been sent to teach this to your heart. So to notice when the song blooms in your heart, whatever the song is, right, the ways that you've been touched today and this week, there's a a meaning and purpose of that. Some people have spoken about the privilege of being here, and it's, it's a tremendous privilege to be here. If you're here, you have a privileged life, however challenging your life may be, and life can always be challenging. And my... My hope with with bringing you to the woods and the wilderness is that you, that song wakes up in your heart and, and it sings loud. You feel deep love. And that love moves you to do good in this world, to take care of this beautiful planet. And we need more and more people coming to the earth to feeling the preciousness and feeling a fierce urgency. We need fierce urgency to combat what's coming down the pipe. And there are many doorways. So I was leading a retreat that um, Rochelle was on. Where's Rochelle? There you are. <laughs> so I was leading a teacher training, um, nature teacher training that Rochelle's done. And um, we, uh, so I took people out, I took the group out. I wanted to see, have them see the sunrise over the Sierra, over the Western Sierra. And um, so we're sitting in this meadow, this long footpath. And I'd sort of, forgotten about the cows in the field and they were sort of way over in the distance or maybe we didn't even see them when we first started I can't remember I think they were out of sight and you're sitting there waiting for the sun to rise just meditating quietly and and we're way I think we're there way before sunrise so we're just sitting there quietly and of course the cows get kind of interested like what are these weird two-leggeds doing sitting still not talking, not doing their usual antics. Anyhow, so this, the whole herd, these beautiful, deep black cows, I'm not quite sure what this variety is, came, with, and they had a lot of young with them. 
and so that and so I'm sitting here and all the other yokus are sitting here and you're like the herd of cows literally this is like <laughs> so we're sitting <laughs> and they're like <laughs> and then the young ones of course super curious they kind of come forward like kind of leave their mum for a little bit and they kind of like poke their noses and then they come back and then they kind of poke forward again and it's just adorable and they got these big as cows do these big beautiful black eyes big eyelashes and we're sitting we're, we're this close and it's just this moving moment of connection and love I mean how can you not love when these beings are just beaming curiosity and wet noses and the, you know, the moisture from their nose and these deep piercing eyes and my memory and I think it was at least two people who said oh I can never eat meat again Rochelle was one and I think there was another person um, that's how love moves when we're connected in nature right? when you're connected and you see a grouse and maybe you're at some foo-foo fancy restaurant and there's grouse for dinner and you go oh well wait a minute that's a living being that's beautiful in the wild I think I'm going to have the vegetarian casserole <laughs> or whatever okay. so it's, it's the, the love and connection that moves us okay. and so the so, so let yourself feel the love here and, and see what that, how that moves in you. So that's the heart of metta. And then out of metta comes compassion, which is this movement, the dynamism of the heart that wants to relieve suffering, that wants to relieve pain and distress. It doesn't just feel the pain as an empathy, but it actually is a dynamic quality that wants to do something about the pain that we feel and, and meet in the world and each other. Uh, in the micro and the macro. And so I'm sure, you know, I'm not alone in feeling that many, many times. It's hard not to listen to the news and hear some loss, some species under threat, some... uh, ecosystem that's being harmed out of that love can come compassion can also go up to the mind and become anger and rage or indignance sometimes that energy is what moves us ideally it's being fueled by compassion this movement that cares And so when we do the inner work in meditation, why, why meditation is such a powerful support is that in our practice, in mindfulness practice, we're learning to sit with experience. We're learning to sit with the truth. And often our experience is not pleasant. It's often painful, difficult, struggle, physical pain, emotional pain, life pain, existential uh, suffering, depression, anxiety, whatever. There's a lot of difficult things, and we learn to sit in the midst of it. Right? That builds a certain equanimity. It builds a certain balance. But it also means we're more able to meet the truth and the truth of suffering. I was doing a retreat recently with uh, the Venerable Analio, who's a very preeminent uh, scholar and translator in Theravadan tradition and of the especially of the Satipatthana teachings. And and at the end of the retreat, usually there's a closing talk and talking about practice in daily life, and he threw all that out. It's like, we're going to talk about climate change. 
and from his perspective he he was you know he felt like mindfulness was the most effective tool that we need in order because it trains us to meet reality and where the society is suffering desperately because we're denying reality at least this administration and many administrations we're not responding to the reality to the truth of the crisis we're facing So when, you know, when the suffering of the world that comes to you in the ways that it does through your direct first-hand experience, you know, dealing with smoke and the fires in the West or whatever, wherever you live and the, you know, the ways you, if you can see uh, climate change happening, how, what, what's the movement in the heart, what, what, what how does compassion want to arise and express itself? You know, a phrase for me that encapsulates compassion is both how can I help, but also what is the need? What is the need? So it's interesting that we have this body of teaching of the Brahma Viharas because it's very easy to get stuck down a corridor of despair, of anger, and um, you know this this multifaceted capacity of the heart that loves, that also turns towards the truth with compassion, but also turns towards that which brings joy. And I kind of feel like I've sort of, one of my kind of messages I keep harping on about is it's essential we also keep turning our hearts to joy because there's a lot of things that bring joy in this life, in this earth. Not, as, not to deny the reality, but to include it as part of the reality because it is part of the reality. Looking at those aspen leaves, it brings joy. Seeing the grass running through the grass brings joy, right? We want to nourish ourselves. It doesn't help to overwhelm ourselves with data that we end up feeling paralyzed and helpless. We want to remember the multifaceted quality of the heart and nourish the multifaceted elements of the heart that need love, that need compassion, that need connection, that need joy, that need equanimity. And this practice of mindfulness, insight, Vipassana is a, is a tremendous support for equanimity. And perhaps one of the greatest qualities we need at this time is equanimity. How do we hold the immensity of suffering? It's impossible in a certain way for, for an individual to hold that. And we're training in meeting the truth which is both beautiful and tragic. It's both joyful and very sad. It's both expansive and numbing. Right? It's all of it. Right? One of Sharon Salzburg's book, a second book, was called A Heart as Wide as the World. It's a beautiful you know, thing. Like to imagine a heart as wide as the world that can embrace the world, all of it. Right? So often the polarities and the way we get into division socially is because we, we have one perspective and not a heart as wide as the world that can, that can hold all of it. Right. For example, 99% of all species that ever roamed the planet, number being 5 billion, are now extinct. That's the nature of 
life. It's the cycle of life. This earth goes through cycles. Humans are having a devastating impact on this current cycle. But we also need to hold a deep time perspective. This is not the first and will not probably be the last where we're going through this kind of ecological crisis. But that doesn't mean we therefore just, you know, count our rosary beads and go, oh well, you know, sixth extinction. There'll be some more coming down the pipe. <laughs> May I be happy? May you be happy? <laughs> right. I mean, you could do that. It's okay, but, you know, <laughs> it's called a bypass. <laughs> right. We're feeling it. We're noticing it. We're feeling the heartbreak of it. But we're also learning to nourish ourselves and to give thanks and gratitude for that which is here. Again, I'll, I'll talk, I will talk more about the, the action piece tomorrow. I don't want to sort of get into that because we're still in retreat and I want us to just be mindful of this multidimensional facet of the heart and, you know, that we're nourishing all of it. The love, the joy, the sadness, the grief, the compassion, the equanimity, you know, And, f- and, and sensing the tenacity of nature, the resilience of nature. Again, we saw another tree with a lightning strike through it and flourishing as trees flourish. Seeing the cycles of nature. I was teaching a retreat in Baja in the, in the beautiful this new, new retreat center I found just north of Cabo in the mountains, this lush desert, very lush desert. And these uh, tree-splitting ficus trees that seem to like growing on these massive granite boulders. These are like 100-foot ficus trees in the desert. And they just sort of, they're just incredibly resilient. And they somehow split the rock and just grow out of rock, around rock, in rock. And it's just, it's just, it's just awe-inspiring how tenacious life is. So I'm going to close. I was going to read this tomorrow, but I'm going to read it today. Today, I think. So this is uh, verses. Um, uh, what's it called? Verses for. I think it's called verses for environmental practice. It's by Robert Aiken Roshi, who is a great. Uh, Zen master who moved, lived in Hawaii and is also uh, a very avid environmental activist. And as a Zen practitioner, one of the main practices is the, the Bodhisattva vows, where we vow in different ways in our practice. And this was his take on the vows in a way uh, oriented to environmental practice. He said, waking, waking up in the morning... I vow with all beings to be ready for sparks of the Dhamma from flowers, children, or birds. Sitting alone in meditation, I vow with all beings to remember I'm sitting together with mountains, children, and bears. Looking it up at the sky, I vow with all beings to remember this infinite ceiling in every room of my life. When I stroll around in the city, I vow with all beings to notice how lichen and grasses never give up in despair. Watching a spider at work, I vow with all beings to cherish the web of the universe. Touch one point and everything moves. Preparing the garden for seeds, I vow with all beings to nurture the soil to be fertile each spring for the next 1,000 years. When people praise me for something, I vow with all beings to return to my veggie garden and give credit where credit is due. 
With tropical forests in danger, I vow to raise hell with the people responsible and slash my consumption of trees. With resources scarcer and scarcer, I vow to consider the law of proportion. My have is another's have not. Watching gardeners label their plants, I vow to practice the old horticulture and let plants identify me. Hearing the crickets at night, I vow to keep my practice as simple, just over and over again. Falling asleep at last, I vow to enjoy the dark and the silence and rest in the vast unknown. So, many responses. And, um, yeah. So, as we spend these last couple of days here on the ranch, I really invite you to explore the, this multifaceted quality of the heart, to notice when the heart's touched, evoked into love, into kindness, to when it's evoked into compassion and care for life, for oneself, for the planet, when it's touched in joy, delight, and rapture, mm-hmm. and also when it has this steadiness of equanimity, this balance evenness, ability to meet exactly what's here. So thank you for your listening practice. I'm sure this may have stirred up some things and um, I would invite, you know, if it stirred up the mind, if possible, to let the, the mind settle and just come back into immediacy of experience. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.